next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. I knew what I wanted. I was a 15-year-old, but I was clear. There was clarity. What did you want at that time? I just wanted to have an education. I remember feeling deep about it. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my life? And then I decided that I was going to be an African person. And I found out that the reason why there's a death from postpartum hemorrhage is because they can't find the blood. And I thought, I could solve that. Stop the bleeding, get the blood. Done. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. Today I have on the show Demigiwa Tubasun. Demi is one of those entrepreneurs that is making money by doing good. Whilst her business is not a social enterprise, it's one of those rare businesses that is using technology to save lives. Demi is the founder of LifeBank, a platform that makes blood available when and where it is needed in Nigeria. They do this by mobilizing blood donations, take inventory of all blood and make it easier for hospitals to order blood on demand and get it delivered to them. In 2016, she met Mark Zuckerberg when he visited Nigeria. After the meeting, Zuckerberg said, if everyone had the opportunity to build something like this, then the world would be a better place. I've been to a lot of different cities. People around the world are trying to build stuff like that. If she actually pulls it off, she'll show a model that will impact not just Lagos, not just Nigeria, but countries all around the world. And that is a good testimony from the founder of Facebook. So I met Temi in 2015 and I've since followed her business and her work. I found what she's doing super intriguing and important. So like Zuckerberg, I also believe that LifePank is a great example of how to use technology to save lives and change the world. Temi grew up in Nigeria, left to join her parents in the United States when she was 15. She came back to the country after her graduate studies. She interned for the Department for International Development, worked as a fellow at the Global Health Corps in Uganda. Now, she runs LifeBank as an entrepreneur and someone who is making a difference. So, Temi, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you. So, let's start from the beginning of your story. You grew up in Nigeria, not in Lagos. Yeah. You grew up in Ila, Oregon. Yes. What were your parents doing in Ila, Oregon? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, my parents, uh, my dad was a teacher um, and, and that was that's what he did with his life. So he was teaching at a college of education in Ila, Oregon and um, he was basically teaching teachers how to be teachers. And my mom was also a teacher. She was an English teacher. Interesting. Uh, so so I, I grew up in, you know, a professor and a secondary school teacher and they both were so committed to the idea of education. Uh, so they moved to Ila, Oregon when my dad got a job there from Ilefe, which where 
my dad was teaching at OAU and then so he was a professor at the University of Ife or Obafemi Awolowo University. Yeah, so and then he got a job. Yeah, so he be so he got a gig to become the dean for the Department of Education at Ilorongon College of Education. So we moved the entire family. I wasn't born then, so he moved. You know, my my siblings and I, and he moved to us to Ilorongon. Um, actually, he moved my siblings to Ilorongon, and then I was born in Ilorongon uh, while they were there. Um, yeah, so that's where I was born. So you grew up grew in up. an academic home. Yes. Right? So so let's fast forward to when your parents then moved from Ilaragun right. to, right. to United States. Right. What prompted that decision for right. them? Um, because I guess that they have a, a very good job. They are middle yeah. class and they have probably, they have some fulfillment in what they're doing. Because there's a threat there. I want to actually see about the, them moving and how that impacted you and the lifestyle of an immigrant. So, mm. what, for, for, so let's start with why did they move to the United States? So I was very young and I think I was about 10 when they left. So I'm not quite sure. Again, funny enough, I've never had that conversation with my parents. What they've always said is they moved to give us a better life. And I think that's correct. But if I remember correctly, there was a part there, there was, I think there was, we had a, a semi-military government or maybe the military government had ended and they were very poor. Although my dad had a very good job, they hadn't been paid. Like I think when we left, they hadn't been paid for like a few, which is... So sad that it's still the exact same situation happening in, you know, in Nigeria. So they had not been paid for like, I think, months. And he had six children and, you know, he had a wife. Even as a dean. Even as a dean of it. I mean, so when something happens to like the education system, it happens to everyone. So it's not just the teachers that you hear about. It's from top to the bottom. So he hadn't been paid. My mom hadn't been paid and they had six children to take care of. And so it was very difficult. I remember till today, like I cannot stand the smell and taste of breadfruit. So there's this particular fruit and I think it, it only grows in southwestern Nigeria. I don't know. What Anyways, is it called? Breadfruit. That's what's, the, what's the local name for it? Igba? Egg, yes, Igba. Yes, Igba. Yes. Is it, is is it, it garden it? egg? No, no, no. I think garden egg is Igba. I yes. can't remember what this one is called. But it's breadfruit. So it's big and it has like sort of like a... Uh, it looks like an orange. Uh, it's green and it's very big. So you cut it... And you have like this dense fruit, vegetable material inside it. So would fry it, would pound it and eat it with. So this particular fruit was very cheap because it grew a lot. So because we were so poor then, my mom would just buy lots of it. And for breakfast, we'll fry it and eat it with, you know, stew, right? That was our yam. For lunch, we'd fry it and eat it with stew. For dinner, we'll pound it and eat it with, you know, you know, drawy. So that was like literally what we ate all the time. Until now, like when I smell that, or I can't even taste it. Because like, it, it reminds you of those difficult times. It's a link to that. And, Absolutely. And a lot of people have that. So yeah. um, I was growing up, there were some difficult times in my family mm. as well. And mm. I, I think there are some things that mm. you associate with those right. times. Right, Absolutely. And when you, when you remember them or when you see those things, they right. just bring you back right. to, to those difficult right. times. Also, there's some good, it, that can be positive as well. Yeah, some absolutely. Positive times in your life. Yeah. And then maybe a song is associated with that. Yeah. And then you, and, then you and it's a good thing. So, so that was a difficult time. It was very difficult. Um, we got out of it by chance, right? So a, a family friend in the US had decided to put my mom's name on a. So America has this uh, visa lottery thing. Yeah. Right? The diversity visa. Diversity visa. So a cousin of my mom had just put my mom's name on the diversity visa. So she wasn't even the one that did it. She didn't even know anything about it. Until she got it, she had no idea what it was. And this story is really cool. He just needed one more name. So he put his dad's name, his mom's name, his auntie's name, like all the people he cared about. 
And then added my mom's name because she babysat him when he was very young. So we're not even family or they're... No, we're family. So so they're cousins. But he was a bit, you know, he came from a rich, you know, rich branch of the family. So she lived with them like for a year or so and babysat him and they they had a good relationship from then. They didn't keep in touch or anything. He lived in the US. He had moved in the US when he was young and he was, you know, living a good life in the US. So you just remember that he had somebody, a cousin, like a second cousin who babysat him when he was younger, so he added my mom's name to it. Actually, I added my mom's maiden name. That's what I was it. about to ask. So, like, yeah. After, I didn't remember the Right, right. Name. So he knows her name, her first name, and added, you know, his mom and my mom are the same dad. Uh, not the same mom, but the same dad. So they're sort of like cousins, aunts, and nephew. Anyhow, so he, um, and then my mom won. Of all the names that he put there, she it was, was the my one mom it was a lottery right? it was a lottery so yeah. they weren't picking it on who deserves or who you care most about you put the names and somebody wins so of all the names that were put in that particular you know branch it, none of the, his own family members actually wanted so it was my mom that wanted and then when she got the invitation she did nothing about it because she had no idea what it was so it was passed down from the u.s to her and she just hid it under her bed she hid it she on- hid it she had no idea what it was so one, what? She, she, she didn't know. She didn't okay. know. So she knew. She this. knew. She knew it was diversity visa to the US. But she's like, I'm not going to the US. I have and six children. She didn't, children. Show, to, she she didn't show anyone. So she hid it. And I think my dad found out about it. And then talked to his own brother. And his own brother was like, What? She has, you know, a green like a green card, a green to, the card to the United States. Your wife has a green card to the United States, and you're suffering, and you're sitting down there. And literally, they went to the embassy. A week before it would expire. Yeah, because that's an expiry date. Exactly. A week before it was, it would expire. So they went to the embassy. The embassy they're like, why? Why did you wait so long? And but she, because she was educated and did, and she wasn't. It, it wasn't lack of. It wasn't ignorance. It was just like she just didn't know anything about that stuff. Like, like it's she not just like was, she cannot read it. Right. She could read it. She understood. She's a teacher. She, yeah, but she just, but she just I, was like just was out it. of her idea of what was possible for her. And that was that's very important. And I get emotional about it because she just didn't think that this was a possibility for her own life. She's a teacher in a small town, in a town where no one even in Nigeria knows, right? So she didn't even think that this was other people. It happens to other people, not her. But anyway, she went to the US and uh, she she moved to Minneapolis with my dad and so my three siblings. So they processed it together. They processed it, got a loan. Got a loan to move because, to you, move have because to you have to buy your own ticket, right? They didn't. They just give you an opportunity to come, but you have to make it happen. So they got loans. You know, they talk to family members. They put it together. They could only afford to take five people. So yeah. in our family, there were six kids, two of them, so eight people. But they could only afford five. Okay, let's pause there. Right. How did they choose, and what was the impact of that? Your parent choosing three people and leaving three others. So. Like off the top of your head, it should matter, but I get it. I'm your mom now. I understand. At first, I maybe didn't understand why not Why not choose me, right? But I think that I get the, the way she made the decision. And the way she explains it to me is this. I have six children. Three of them were going into their teenage years. And three are very young. So I was 10. My sister was three. And my brother was 11 months old. And then she had... so. There were six of us. The first one was, I think, at the time, 15. Second was 14. The next one was 12. And there was me. I was about nine at the time. And um, my brother was, my sister was three. And then there was a baby. 
right? So that, those were the kids. And she decided that the three of the first three were going into their teenage years. And she decided as a mom, she needed to be there when they were teenagers because they were in such a precarious age. She thought that teenagers were more precarious than, you know, young children because, you know, their needs were basic, you know, you need to give them food, love and attention. That was it. But for teenagers, you need to be there to help form and mold them. So she decided she was going to take the teenagers. So she took the first three. She took the first three. That must be a difficult decision for her. She because I'm a baby. dad as she well. She left at 11 yes. month old. I can't e- imagine yeah. not living with yeah. my it's about 13 years well um one year three months now right i can't imagine I it can't. must be a difficult decision for her absolutely it was very difficult and it was incredibly difficult so she worked she had three jobs and my dad as well they both had about three jobs by the time they moved to me not a professor job not a professor professor no so he was a professor and it was a professor and yeah and he started over he started over it was it was a marking exams so there was this exam, like SAT, it was SAT. So he got a job to mark SATs, right? And since he was a professor, he was an education professor. So he got the job. So he became a marker for SAT. I, I wasn't sure if it was SAT or ACT. So he, he got a job marking those ones. My mom got a job at um, a, a uh, my mom was very good with her hands. So she got a job at a firm, a huge medical um, device maker called Medtronic. So Medtronic makes um, heart pace, uh, heart pacer. So basically, if you have open heart surgery and your heart can't basically, you know, do the work that it's supposed to do by itself, they will put a machine like a little robot in your heart and it will help you, um, you know, pump. Um, So she got a job putting it together, right? And my mom is very, like, outgoing. I'm not like her at all. Like, she's very extroverted, very funny, very worldly. So she just fit into that world, right? And she had another job where she was working at a nursing home and my dad also had that so in the morning my dad would go um so they would drop off the three kids at school uh, my dad would go to the marking job my mom would go to metronic at night they would go to a nursing home and work all night and they wow. do it over and and weekends they would take weekends so um one party would do one weekend and the other one would be in the house with the children and the next weekend so they did that for about four years. Four years? About four years. And then they bought a house. After they bought a house, they saved for one more year and then decided it was time to bring the rest of the children. So five years after my parents left the U.S., uh, left Nigeria, they came back for us and t- took us to the U.S. That was the first time they came back. It was the very first time. Because it's expensive to be coming yeah, back anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And they wanted to buy a house because you can't put six kids in an apartment in the U.S., right? So they needed to buy a house. And they needed to buy tickets and make sure that they have a home to bring their children to. So they came for you they and they processed your own stuff. Yeah. And then they... Funny I mean, enough, I entered the U.S. as an American. Right. Because... Because my mom had already become... So after five years, you become you are, you know, naturalized citizen. So my mom got naturalized after f- five years of living in the U.S. And... Because she was an American, she could confer Americanness to me. So I'm actually technically not a naturalized citizen of the U.S. I'm like a, you know, birth citizen right, of the U.S. Because she conferred it to yes. you. Yes. So you. So let's talk about that shift, that mm-hmm. change that happened. Mm-hmm. One, and you were living in with relatives. Yes, I was living with my grandma in Elisha. In Elisha. So you, the three of you, have to move to Elisha mm-hmm. and be living with relatives with a yeah. grandma who is yeah. probably struggling. And yeah. To a different life. Yeah. And let's talk about that change, that yeah. switch between 
Elisha today mm-hmm. and Minnesota mm-hmm. the next day mm-hmm. and how you fit into that life <laughs> right. right and 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 went to school and make right. new friends right so um i think one of the things that helped me the most was muse and bones so funny right so i had this habit of reading romance novels and i've been reading them since i was five like since i could read i lived with my grandma and my grandma had a daughter and my well she's technically not my grandma she's like my aunt but she raised my mom so she's my grandma so that's what we call her so she had a daughter who read meals and bones she had left the house but she left all her books in my grandma's house i discovered them when i was about six years old or so I mean, when I was about 10, after I went to... It's a bit like my, like my dad had lots of Adley Chase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I picked them up yeah, when, yeah, I was, yeah. when I was So I just... Up. And it was... Maybe if it had been Adley Chase or something else, I, I, my life would have been completely different. But I just found Muse and Boons. And that was it. I was sucked in. What? Look at this world of love and affection. And naughty things too. But, but that was probably besides the point. But I just fell into this world and it was magical. So anytime there was an issue, I was lonely, I missed my parents, I'd go into the books. I read them over and over again. She had about 20 books. I was reading them. I can't still remember every single storyline because I read them so much. Um, but then the other thing is also taught me about American culture, right? And Western culture. So by the time I had moved, it wasn't as much of a... Like a culture shock because I knew it. Because right? you knew what I Because I'd read it. Yeah, I'd read I, a lot. Right. Unfortunately, I also expected something more romantic than I, <laughs> you know, than I, than I ended up, you know, realizing. I remember racism hitting me like on the face, and I was like, "What? What is this thing? I never saw it in my books." Um. So, so it was really, really. I think that really, really prepared me, and it also helped my vocabulary, helped me be able to speak very well. So I was comfortable with the English language, at least on the book. But it was really interesting. I remember my first class; it was a biology class. For the first two weeks, I had no idea what the teacher was saying. Like, n- no idea. Is, is it because of the accent? Or? Accent. So I passed the class with A. Like, I got an A in the class. But that was because I read the entire book over and over and over again. But I had no idea what the teacher was saying. And I still remember this clearly. That in my biology class, I, like, not one word for almost the entire time. So anyways, I went to the U.S. I had finished, I had been in SS3 in Nigeria by the time Which I is left. the final year for second Yeah, school. exactly. So by the time I went to the U.S., I went back to um, 11th grade, right? So I, was in a, so I did two years of high school, and then I went to college. Yeah. But it was really interesting to me because by the time I got to the U.S., I knew what I wanted. I was a 15-year-old, but I was clear. There was clarity. What did you want at that time? I just wanted to have an education. What wanted, what do you want to study? I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. So I had a funny story. Um, when I was growing up, there was somebody called Ganifa Waimi that it was in popular popular culture in Nigeria. Yeah, he's an, he was an activist. He, he was, was an activist. Uh, I'm not some... actually quite... I wasn't... Until now, I didn't actually know. I knew he was a lawyer, but I didn't know why he was in popular culture. Like, I still don't know right now. Because he fought for the masses. He was one of those people that was paying in the neck for the military government and always do pro bono services for people that are dep- uh, people that are oppressed Absolutely. And, and always uh, in the front line of activism. Absolutely. So I think maybe I had been like enthralled with his story before my parents. This was before my parents left, like when I was five. So everyone I decided I was going to be a lawyer, perhaps because I read a lot. I don't know what prompted that, but that followed me. Like I never sort of, 
you know, veered from the law, 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 law. So when I got to the US, the first thing I did was read, like, I remember talking to my guidance counselor, I'm going to be a lawyer. And she's like, what? You just African, you know? I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a lawyer. And actually, before I graduated from high school, I went to study. I had a family friend who was a lawyer, Nancy. We actually met in Lagos a few. She's, she's American. She's white American. And by the time I was 17, she saw like my obsession with the law. So one of my uncles, you know, put me in touch with her and I went to intern in her office in, in the as US. a 17 year old in as the US before I finished college you know, high school. Because you're so obsessed about the thing. So what changed that? Because I can see a bit of that at work saying what you're doing right. now and trying to help the people that right. that have been neglected or solving problems that maybe government has not been solving. What changed you from being a lawyer to now studying what you studied in university? I like to say that your story only makes sense in hindsight. And it's true. But there are points in this like as I think about my life, there are major points where it was like a reshaping point in my life. The first one was when my parents left. So you, you first me, I had two, two my, my, my grandma was old, older. So I had two kids to take care of, right? I was their caretaker. Because you were the, the most senior. I was the most senior. And you were so like 10? I was 10 years old. And the and I think the, the issue was also the, the next one was so far in age from me. So I had to take responsibility for her. So she was about three at a time and the baby was 11 months old. So I was their parent, right? I went to PTA meetings. I No, seriously, I was, I, I picked them from school. So I'll take a bus after I left school to go pick them up and I'll go to my grandma's shop. I was basically their parent since I was 10 years old. So it forced me to grow up. So I, I say all the time I was born old, but I, I grew up at 10. I became old at 10 years old. So um, so that was the first point. And the next point was moving to the U.S. and seeing what was possible for my story and realizing that I could still become a lawyer. And the third point would be Model United Nations. Sounds really strange. but So in the U.S., if you wanted to be a lawyer, you had to get like, an, you don't go to school. Your undergraduate is not in law. It's usually like something in, you know, perhaps um, psychology or political science or English or literature. So usually people will end up going to law school to that first. And then once they graduate the four years of college, then they'll go to law school for two years and then you become a lawyer. Yeah. And then you take the bar and then you become a lawyer. So I was studying political science. So part of one of the easiest courses in political science, Model United Nations. What is that about? So Model United Nations is a class where you learn to be a delegate in the United Nations, right? So you, it's like mock United Nations or like mock Senate. So schools usually have things like that. But in my college, it was model United Nations. That was a big thing because it was an easy class. Um, so it, it was an, an, a very, very, so easy. The class was very easy. Um, so I, I took it because, you know, <laughs> college student wanted an easy pass and I fell in love with it. With the model United with the United Nations. Nations, you just felt this is I just, good. I was like, this is interesting. It was almost like I'd become American, and then I became African. What do you mean by that? So when I got to the US, I was American, right? I became American. You, you tried to 
It gets into the American culture exactly. and, and, and internalize exactly. everything about America exactly. just to fit in. I felt very American. And you you see your life there for a long time because that's what exactly. your parents said. Okay. Yeah. They built, they've made the sacrifices yes. so that you, because that was my major question, that yeah. your parents took you to the US mm-hmm. and then you moved back. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why did I you know, do my all mom of would that? Be like, what? <laughs> why did you do all of that? You, yeah. you moved, so, yeah. so you internalize American culture. You wanted yes. to be American. I was American. Right. No one could tell me anything. I spoke like I had changed my accent even. Like I had, you know, I would like cut my hair to be long. I was very like, you know, you know, preppy. I was in like, you know, I was even running for student body president in high school. So I was very, you couldn't tell me anything. I was an American girl, a Minnesotan girl. And then I went to college and I took this and I was going to be a lawyer. I was interning. So I didn't stop interning in the law firm when I was 17. Every summer I'll go back to Nancy's office. You know, it, it was called um, Zalu, uh, Berg and Debele Law School. I mean, sorry, law firm. So every summer I'd go back, I'll do case. Like I was basically a paralegal because I'm also intense. When I decide this is what I'm going to do, it's all in. And I focus completely on that one thing. And, and that and that's also part of my personality. So when I wanted to become a lawyer, it was all in. I was... Every summer, I'm back to the law school. I mean, sorry, the law firm, and I'm following to I'm following my friend Nancy to court every single day. I was in it, and she was just like, "Wow, I have never met a young, a nineteen year old who's so obsessed with you know being a with lawyer." Law but that was that was I love the environment. And you see your life like that. You that was it. Like I was gonna Nancy. be like Nancy. And- That's it. I was gonna be like Nancy. And it was funny. Nancy was also an artist. So she had like a, you know, a, a studio. So after work, she would go to the studio and paint. So I was going to be, I, I was going to set up my life like that. I was going to write romance novels in the evening and then be a lawyer <laughs> in the morning. You found and a model, which I, a lot of people don't find. You found a model. That was it. And that so you it. see that this is going to be a, a, a yes. American life. So yes. what switched that? The, model the, Uni- United Nations. And then you became African. Yeah. So first model United Nations. And I, I started thinking, so it was first, so it was almost like the catalyst, it, didn't, it wasn't what created it, it was a catalyst. So I started thinking of myself as African. Because in the UN, in the model UN, I was, I also went to a school with a lot of white people. Because right. you're in Minnesota. It, it was Minnesota. And I also went, to, I didn't go to school in Minneapolis, in the Minneapolis where a lot of, where it's more diverse. I went to school in a place called Moorhead, very close to North Dakota. Right, very, very close to Fargo, North Dakota. So I went to school there. So that's like white people town. <laughs> like, very cold. <laughs> and I think I was one of the like first 10 first black, 10 people black in the school. Like, so it was really like random. Um, so I, I chose the school because, I, you know, I think they had a very strong pre law, you know, program. Right? So, anyways, I, I started thinking of myself. So in UN, they put me in the African. So I, in the model UN, so I had to sort of represent the African countries. So they would put me as South African delegate, right? the delegate from South Africa. And you need to like know what's going on in that particular country. And fight their cause. And fight their cause. So exactly. you were internalizing that. Exactly. As against other nations' interests. Exactly. And so maybe if I had been like given like France, yes. for example, maybe I would have seen it differently. Yes. But because I had to research every single thing to be a delegate from South Africa. And remember it was South Africa. And and the committee they put me in was also the social and economic committee. So in, in the UN you have different committees and, and same thing for Mother UN. Yeah. So so I had to 
researched the social problems in South Africa, right? So there was HIV. I was reading a lot about HIV. Uh, and then I, I think I had a concept of Nelson Mandela, but I don't think I knew much about him. So, and I discovered Nelson Mandela. I was 19 years old in a college and I was discovering Nelson Mandela for the first time. That's a deep one because my, Nelson Mandela has so many layers and right. discovering him for the first time as a 19 right. year old. Right. For an intense lady like you. Right. Just, that, I can, I can imagine right. what that means. Right. I, I get into some mood like that when I discover somebody. Right. And, and then, uh, it happened more recently than like mm-hmm. when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, when I discovered, and I know Bob Marley. I know mm-hmm. a lot about Bob Marley, but I watched the movie Marley. Mm-hmm. And for months, I mm-hmm. was into Bob Marley. So mm-hmm. reading everything about him, mm-hmm. listening to all his music, mm-hmm. analyzing what he means. Exactly. And it's just... Pfft. Right. So that was it for me. I read the books, I read his autobiography, I read everything I could find on Nelson Mandela. I actually named my son Nelson. So it sort of really it stayed with me. And then I realized that I was an African. And that was like a huge, it was, I went into like a, a crisis, right? It didn't seem like a crisis when I was going through it, but it was a crisis. So it was like a complete, like, like it was almost like I was having to turn a fast moving car. So it was like a complete turnaround. And that was it. I canceled law school. I'd taken the mock law school um, bar. So, so you have to take the test to enter law school. And then you have to take a test at the bar. So I'd, I'd started taking both tests by that time. At the time, I was a junior in college. So that's my third year. So I just completely switched around. I remember having like a lot of emotional, you know, like a lot of feelings about it. I think I was 20 years old at the time. I remember feeling deep about like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my life? And then I decided that I was going to be an African person. And that was it. But you were already African person. I didn't, it's almost like when you're young, you're creating yourself. And because of the move, it was almost like a sense of displacement, displacement of the self. So when I left Nigeria, I was basically displaced from my Nigerian identity. And then I changed that identity to an American one. When I found out about South Africa and Nelson Mandela, then it was almost like I got my African identity back, right? And then I decided that I was African. And that was it. A lot of times in the U.S., when you go through sort of this situation, you drop out of school and then you go try to do something else. I didn't. So I, I stuck it out. I graduated on time and um, I was 21 at the time I graduated from college and then I knew that I was not going to go to law school so normally it's after that you take the you know the LSAT you couldn't find the compatibility between your being African and And being American and being American you couldn't find it so it's also a personality thing I'm always all in I don't do half measures in anything that I do I'm in it and I'm all in and you and then sometimes something happens, then it's a complete switch. But I'm always, whenever I'm in something, I'm in fully. So I knew there could not be, I could not be African and be a lawyer in the U.S., a family lawyer in the U.S. Because I wanted to study family law. Um, so I, I just couldn't, it was, those two ideas were not compatible in my mind. Perhaps if I was a bit older they would have it would have been compatible because you could you could compromise because exactly getting older means that you learn how to compromise exactly. a lot of things exactly and, but that's, that's but when you're young i was 21 year old and i knew oh, you had to choose 
I kept telling myself, you have to choose one side. You're either American, so you go to be like Nancy, or you're African, and you go back home and do something about all the problems in Africa. And that was it. So I decided that. Oh, so you decided that you're going to go back home? Oh, yes. I was going to be Nelson Mandela, really. That was the That was it. I needed to be like Nelson Mandela. Did you discuss this with your parents? No. Never once talked to anyone about it. No, not one person. Perhaps my sister, my older sister and my younger sister. I think I discussed it with them a few times and my big brother. But never, never talked to an adult actually about it. Like never, ever had a conversation with anyone about it. It was internal. And also the U.S. is a little bit different. Perhaps if I was in Nigeria, I would have. But in the U.S., you're supposed to be an adult. I was 21 at this time. I could, you know, I could drink, I could vote, you know, I could, you know, do so much. And you're supposed to actually, you leave your parents' house at 18 years old. And then you become an adult and you need to be making decisions for yourself. So in my head, I, I was 21. I needed to decide. I was an adult and I can't be asking, you know, other adults what I should do. So I never actually talked to anyone about it. And it was a big switch. And then I decided, I knew I still needed another ed education. So I decided, okay, so you're going to be a UN delegate. You're going to be a delegate in the United Nations. You're going to be an ambassador and you're going to change. It. So that was the first, you're going to be, a, you know, in the UN system for 10 years. And then, and then also Kofi Annan was the, you know, general, was United, United, United Nations general, general at that Trump. time. So it's even like, I think it was even like, <laughs> maybe perhaps if it had been like a white person and not an African person, it would have been different. Yeah. But it was Kofi Annan is, you're going to be the next Kofi Annan. And then after that, you're going to go back to Africa and change the world. Then you're going to be Nelson Mandela. And that was the plan. And then I did that. So I, I went to school. I went to a, a, a graduate school uh, called um, Monterey International Studies, Institute of International Studies. It's in um, Northern California. No? Is it Northern? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, an hour away from San Francisco. So I went to the school. And I spent two years there. Basically, the school is really interesting. They train people to have international careers. So you either in like the security branch, so CIA, FBI type people, or you're in the do good branch, like UN <laughs> type people. That's so interesting. You, yeah, yeah, like this interesting, and it's still there. It's a pretty awesome school if you want an international career. So I went to that school, um, and and I went to the UN track. So I I studied. I actually did my masters in French. Because you needed like two, you know, language, two UN languages. So I knew English was going to be one and French was going to be the other. So I studied for my master's in French. So like I said, when I decide on a track, I'm all in. So I chose that school because, you know, it was going to train me to be a UN ambassador to the UN. And then the next thing happened to me. Another so the switch. next switch happened after that. And what was that? Right. So in, in my school... The, so the UN, getting master's in the US, it's two years. And then between those two years, you have a summer, a three-month summer. So in my school, you're required or encouraged strongly to leave the United States and go and do something internationally. So I knew I was going to go to Nigeria. So between the summers, I came to, the, to Nigeria. And I was in northern Nigeria. I was volunteering with DFID. I was an intern at DFID, a DFID program called Parts 2. And it's part of that program of the school for you to do all of that. So it's not it's not an official program. You're just encouraged to do it outside the, outside the US. Outside the US, so it has to be international. And it has to be sort of so it's basically building your resume for when you graduate, right? So you so first year you do the theory, the idea, and then you go away to go and see how it actually works, and then you come back and write your final thesis. That's how the school was structured. So I went off. 
and I came to Nigeria because I, I mean, that was all I knew. So I went to Northern Nigeria and I was volunteering um, with um, PASS2. It's called Partnership for Transforming Health System. Now, at this time, I didn't care about health. Like, I, I didn't really have anything to do with it. You just on a track to become... Become an ambassador, a, like be a UN delegate. That was it. So I didn't really care. So I just happened to get an internship with PATS2. Then I learned about healthcare, right? So I was in, I, I was in Kano one day. We were doing, like, household um, surveys. So the project I just started, they needed to do, like, a baseline survey. Uh, so we were going household to household. And they gave me an internship because they needed, you know... You know, somebody to, to just do the grunt work. Uh, so we're going household to household in northern Nigeria, uh, in Kano. And um, one day, the team entered this village. You know, it's a small village outside Kano. And um, I remember once we entered the village, it was, everyone was like standing around. And usually people are on, in a day like this, you only find like housewives. But there were men around. So there was a particular homestead, and inside it, there was a, a young girl who had delivered a baby, right? And she had been apparently in labor. She hadn't delivered. She had been in labor for three days. Three right? days? Apparently. In house, not in, in house. hospital? Oh, no, 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 no. She was in a house. She was in a halt, which is normal in that part of the world. And um, the baby had been breached, I believe, and she couldn't deliver the baby because the baby was breached. And first... So she needed emergency C-section or someone to turn the baby if it was turnable. But they didn't have any resources to get her to the hospital where she could get emergency C-section. Um, so they were just trying and telling her to push and push. She can't push. Once the baby is breached, you, there's nothing you can do. So, so you, what you, were you, they doing? So they were waiting. For her to die? Yes. So they were waiting. Her name was Aisha. Her name is Aisha. She lived. The baby died. But she lived. So and and it was one of those turning. So Sammy, so when you saw that mm -hmm. and you got into that place mm -hmm. with your team mm -hmm. and you saw this what is happening, mm -hmm. of course mm -hmm. you guys are more experienced. Mm -hmm. This is a bridge baby and mm -hmm. these people are waiting for her to die. Mm -hmm. What did you do, do next? So they took her in the in the bus and we took her to the hospital in Kano. So we took her with us. So we cancelled this work and took her to the hospital in Kano. That's what saved her life. But unfortunately, through all of that day, through the days, the baby had died. So dad, and the interesting thing about it was she was around 23 years old at the time. I was about 21, 22. So you could relate I was 22 to her. years old. You could relate to I her. I could relate to her. I grew up in a village similar to hers. So he also went back to my first story. Like, if not for that lucky break that my mom had, in my young mind, it was very likely that I would have been in that same position. I couldn't see the difference. You know, sometimes when you go to Africa and you see really horrible things and you're like American, right? You could, there's a distance, right? There's a natural distance. Even if you're like Lagosian, right? Or you lived in Abuja and you see something like that, there's still a dist distance between. Yeah. But because of what, how I grew up, in Elisha, in Laurangong, where I was born, there was no distance. I couldn't see a distance, right? Her story was my story. Her future was, her present could have been my, you know, my present as well. Like if not for that lucky break that took my mom out of the, the country, I could have been in a position and I saw it very clearly and it broke my spirit. 
I remember staying in the hotel for three days, not leaving. And I remember all my colleagues laughing at me and calling me Americano and what's wrong with the Americano and stuff like that. And it was just so personal for me. Of course, I left after the internship. I went back to the U.S., but I couldn't stop thinking about her. I never forgot about her. I became obsessed with healthcare. As a way to solve as that a way kind to of solve problem. that kind of problem. Right. As a way to prevent Aisha's story multiplying. I became obsessed with healthcare and I became specifically obsessed with maternal healthcare. When it was time to write my dissertation, I got an opportunity to intern at the World Health Organization in to, to be a fellow at the World Health Organization. So there's a system, there's a there was a program in my school where you go to an international organization like that and you work for them for free in exchange for data. So I went to WHO in Switzerland for, for six months and I was working there and um, I was basically helping them crunch numbers around health financing. And I was writing my dissertation about health, building health institutions. Where, where was then. this again? Sorry? You, you were doing this in their office? Yeah, in, in Switzerland. In Switzerland. Yeah, in and Geneva. pay for the accommodation? And no, I, I paid for the accommodation, but in exchange for data. So they had to give me data set to do my dissertation and I would work for them. So I was there for six months and I was working and living in Geneva. It was beautiful. I loved it. Um, I wanted to stay on, but I felt like I was basically running, maybe running from comfort and running from a simple life. Because I could have stayed, like if I had never met Aisha, right? The UN is in Geneva, by the way. That is an easy the way for you to The headquarters of the UN was in Geneva. So I would have just stayed in. And that was actually the path. That's why one of the reasons why I went to the school, because they will move you to where the, you know, either New York City, where the UN is, or Geneva, and you get you an internship, and then you figure out how to get a job and stay, right? So I could have just stayed in Geneva, which would have been a path that I would have taken, if not for Aisha, so I went back to, I knew I wanted to go back to Nigeria. That was all I could talk about. I told my mom. My mom was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I want to go back to Nigeria. But I went back to the U.S. and I got a job with a health, with a HMO, like a health maintenance organization in the U.S. called Fairview. Um, I worked for them for a year, just plotting. All this time I was plotting how I was going to get back to Nigeria. You, you were working with them and then you were plotting how you were going to come back. I'll go to, to work in the morning. I'll come back home and write about Nigeria. So I was basically writing for free. So I remember getting a gig to write. Like I was on Twitter all the time, tweeting about Nigeria. It was like my body was displaced. Like my body was in the US, but my mind was really in Nigeria. Like I knew all the news. Like I was following everything. Like I was like, even my boyfriend at the time was in Nigeria. Like I was just like, I'm not dealing with anything. My body might, might be in the US, but my mind, my soul, everything was in Nigeria. So I was obsessed. I would write for anybody who would let me write for them. I would tweet all day on Twitter. You know, like as soon as I got out of work, I was tweeting about Nigeria, Nigeria, Nigeria. All night, I'll stay all night. Just so, so when Nigeria wake up, when Nigerians wake up, I'll spend a few hours with them and then go to work and then come back. They'll probably be up by that time. It'll be almost close to evening. I'll stay up with them until they go to bed. So that was all I did. And then, so I got a gig at Global Health Corps. And Global Health Corps is this organization that sends Americans to Africa. Right. Unfortunately, they didn't have any anything in Nigeria. But I knew, oh, Africa, <laughs> that's, I want to go there. So you spend, it's like Peace Corps, mm-hmm. but for healthcare. And it's one year instead of two years. So um, and then I went to Uganda. I lived there for a year in, in a small 
tiny town. And you still want to come to Nigeria, but Uganda yeah. is closer. Yeah, I mean, it's Africa. I might as well see a taste of it. So you went to Uganda? Yes. And then what I stayed there for doing? a year. So I was working with the district government there in, in Uganda with UNDP. So it was a project of UNDP to help the district government do health supply chain. So I was in charge. I don't know why they did that, but I was in charge of the health supply chain for an entire district in Uganda. So I was building technology for supply chain there on the UNDP. And I did that for a year. And did that solidify your thinking around what you're doing now with um uh, life bank or, or how did you move from that at the time it didn't solidify anything i was just doing what i could do in healthcare um because at this point my cv now looks like a healthcare cv because i spent like all my life doing healthcare at this point and so i was just i was just continue i was learning i wanted to learn about healthcare systems so it was really good for me one and two I still only cared about maternal health at this point. Like I still thought about Aisha every day and I still only care about specific about that part of, you know, um, healthcare. But I was working. I didn't have anything to do with maternal healthcare in Uganda, but I, I sort of was learning about supply chain, how to build a supply chain system. So I did that for a year. And then I got married to a Nigerian man and I convinced him to leave his, you know, master, like leave his life in the U.S. to come to Nigeria with me. Oh, you met in the U.S.? I mean, we met in the U.S. before I left. And he's, he's, he has a settled life in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. He, he finished. He was about to get into a PhD program. In the U.S.? In the U.S. And he wanted to stay on in the U.S.? Yes. And then you convinced him that let's join this mission together to come to Nigeria? Yes. Wow. It was a deal breaker. I said, my life is going to be in Nigeria. That's what I want. Do you want it or do you not want it? And he's like, well, I love you. I guess I'm going to just come to Nigeria then. And we did. So we got married in Nigeria and then we never left. So you moved, after Uganda, you mm -hmm. just moved to Nigeria. No job. So I just, I just left. No job, no plans, nothing. You just got a place mm -hmm. and you were staying. So I was staying with my uncle. I moved to Nigeria. He also came back from Nigeria. So I'd finished his master's then. So he had a Fulbright scholarship. So he finished his master's and then... Most people just stay on, but it's like, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> so, and then you moved to Nigeria with me. So we both entered Nigeria within like, we hadn't, we hadn't seen each other for a year, by the way. So we had been, we'd been courting before I left the US and I left and went to Uganda. And, um, so we now saw each other for the first time and it was a month to our wedding. You, you, your boyfriend and you, or your fiance, mm -hmm. you, you saw each other for the first time in Nigeria after. No, like, no, for us, having courted. Having courted. And you, a, year not for a year Because you were in Uganda. Yes. And it was in the US full by yeah. scholarship. Mm -hmm. And you came to Nigeria. Yep. And we got married. And then we never left. And so you figured out where are you going to leave? Are you going to get a job? Yeah, so you so, got a job teaching, like across the road, actually. You got a job teaching. He, he got, got a, a job. job teaching. I had no jobs. Like, so, and then, so let's move to how you then started Life Bank mm -hmm. through that. So, mm -hmm. you came to Nigeria, okay, mm -hmm. you're clear about what you wanted. Mm -hmm. You want to stay, mm -hmm. you want to help, you want to do healthcare, maternal healthcare. Mm -hmm. Now, how did that then become what mm -hmm. you're doing now? Okay, still a long story, but to make it short, I got a job with Lagos State doing facility management for healthcare. Right. So one of the, so it was called Office of Facility Man Management and Maintenance. And the person there was a good friend and we had met on Twitter because now I spend all my time on Twitter. Um, so we had met on Twitter and we had talked and she led the parasatal and she, she gave me a job helping to fix Lagos State's um, health facilities and maintaining them. So I did that for a year and then I got a job making healthcare movies. 
right? Interesting. Healthcare movies about, you know, HIV, HIV you know, SRH. I love the job. All day I'll just read movies, Nollywood, popular Nollywood scripts and figure out how to put health messages in there. That was okay. my job. Right. So you partner with Nollywood producers? Yeah. So we'll pa- you need yeah, exactly. to put some stuff into exactly. your story so we'll, and you pay for that. Yeah. So we'll pay them. It's like product placement, but instead of a real product, it's a, like a, an idea. That's a good one. Yeah. It's really good. It was it was fun. It was awesome. I was on set. All, so I either I'm in my bed reading scripts or I'm on set. And that was my job and I was paid very well for it. And then um, I became a mom. So I got pregnant. Everything was fine. I went back to the U.S. to deliver my child. It was really nice. It was lovely. I had a good job. My husband had a good job. We had you know, a nice middle-class lifestyle in Lagos. It was lovely. Everything was great. And then the birth time came. And then I was in labor. And it was so so weird. It's one of these. It's another switch. It's almost like the universe. And if you believe in God, perhaps God was trying to push me in the direction of what I was supposed to do. The exact same problem that Aisha had was what I had. A breach. Interesting. Right? The ex- almost to the T. And w- was that creating was some nothing. trauma in your head and pictures of it was Yeah. Yeah. It was almost like, pay attention. Like it was like a stop. Like you just, you're running in one direction and you just hit a wall. Pay attention. I remember all, all this time I kept saying, I kept thinking, Pay attention to me. Pay attention. And I had decided on a different path, but I felt like I needed to be on a different path. So this happened. And then I could no longer look away. Right? I could no longer have a Lagos middle-class lifestyle. Uh, how did you... So that bridge was solved easily because you were Yeah, exactly. US. So I, was, I had been in labor for 26 hours and they tried and tried and tried. Baby wasn't coming out. So they had to give me an emergency section. So the one thing that she needed, I got pretty easily in 26 hours. And um, I survived and my baby did as well. So when I came back, I decided that this was going to be, I could no longer do this job, um, although lovely and I enjoyed it and I was good at it, that I needed to do something actively about maternal health care. And since I couldn't build a hospital system as a 26-year-old <laughs> young, young woman, um, there was something I could do, which was... So I, I now found out, after studying and researching, that one of the highest causes of maternal mortality is something called postpartum hemorrhage. So it's actually the highest cause of maternal mortality in Africa, in Nigeria, in the entire developing world. So basically, a mom gives birth, and then she starts bleeding. Because it's a traumatic, sometimes it's a traumatic experience. So she bleeds and bleeds and then she starts emerging really quickly and she has about two hours to leave. If she doesn't stop the bleeding and get the blood, she's going to die. She's going to go in shock and die. And that was the biggest problem. That's the biggest problem. It's actually not just the biggest problem in, health, in, in maternal healthcare. It's actually the f- biggest killer of women in general. Emorrhage. Postpartum emorrhage. Postpartum emorrhage. Yep. It's the largest killer of women in the developing world. What caused it? So, so it's a different things. First is genetic makeup, right? So Africans generally tend to have a lot more anemia, right? Partly genetics and partly diet, right? And two, birth is traumatic. 
removing a human being from another human being's body is a traumatic experience. So, and it's just a thing. Hemorrhaging postpartum happens all over the world, right? All over the world. Now, in the US and in the West, what would usually happen is the person gets blood, right? So it's not a big deal. Some people still die from hemorrhaging in the US, but it's not the largest killer of women because you just get blood, right? You easily, you're hemorrhaging. They try to stop the bleeding. They replace the blood. If they can't stop the bleeding, they just keep adding blood until your body figures out how to clot, right? So that's what, that's what they did in the US, right? Um, in the West, in Europe, in America, you just get the blood you need. In Africa, you don't get the blood that you need, right? So that's what actually causes on time or at all. And that's what actually causes the death, right? Um, So it's the largest killer of women. Largely solvable, largely prevent, the death is largely preventable. Just get blood. Stop the bleeding, get the blood. Done. But a lot of people die because they don't have that. Absolutely. And when I found out that, so I actually didn't always, I didn't always know this. Like, so when I came back from Nigeria, from the U.S. after giving birth to my child, it took me about a year to figure out what the problem was. So I first found out that it was postpartum hemorrhage. Then I found out that the reason why there's a death from postpartum hemorrhage is because they can't find the blood. And I thought, I could solve that. And that was it. And that's where Life Monk was born. Now, so getting to that problem, which again, your, your story is interesting from, mm-hmm. and I see a thread there, which is mm-hmm. you always wanted to do something big, something mm-hmm. impactful. Mm-hmm. So there's always that social impact mm-hmm. in your story. Mm-hmm. And then you narrow it down to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I found this problem. Mm-hmm. Blood. If we can get blood to more women after they give birth to children, then you can reduce that cost by postpartum Emerge. And I can save more Aisha's. And you can save more. So when you got that, this is a problem I want to solve. Mm-hmm. This is my Mandela Not moment. want to solve. This problem I could solve. This is a problem I could solve. Exactly. This is the problem I could address. This is my Mandela moment. My Ghani moment. My Ghani Fawemi moment. My Mandela moment. My, my The problem I really want to, um, I could go after. How did you then go about trying to solve it? Because I feel it's, it's huge. Mm-hmm. How did you go about ideating solving mm. that problem? So I knew that it had to be. So I'd, at this time, I'd gotten a little bit known as a health expert. So I'd spent a lot of time around CCOB, right? Um, so they had a few, you know. CCOB, the co-creation. Co-creation hub. In Lagos. Right. So they had two, two events where they had sort of healthcare events and they had invited me to come and speak to developers about you know, healthcare, the healthcare system in general. So I, I knew about technology. I wasn't in it. I'd never done it. Well, I spent a lot of time around it. And then we also had this, during the Ebola crisis, we had this partnership. So my organization, um, Nollywood Workshops, had a partnership with CC Hub to try to, you know, get word out about Ebola. And I remember that I knew, I was already in sort of like that sort of tech community as a health expert. So I knew it had to be something technology because that was what i thought i thought it was so cool what people in technology were doing so i knew it had to be something technology and that was all i focused on so anytime i have to make a big decision i usually go on a road trip right usually to baton where my, my husband is from uh, and where my parents have a home so I remember one morning we decided we were going to go to Ibadan. And the reason why road trips work very well for me is my toddler is in the back seat in his car seat my husband is driving 
and walk is far. So no one can reach me for these two hours while I'm on the road. Um, and, I, and I remember spending all these two hours thinking about it. And that was where LifeBank as an idea, the tech part of the idea came from. So I was driving on the way. My, my husband was driving in Ibadan and he just hit me. The problem really is, and before, before this trip, I had had a meeting with somebody who worked at a blood bank, who owned a blood bank. And he had mentioned that sometimes we have to trash blood. I was like, ooh, what? All along, I always thought it was a shortage problem. And then he said, sometimes we have to discard it because it expires. I was like, what? Blood expires? Apparently it does. And apparently it's a big problem. That some blood has a short shelf life. It can last for only six weeks. Even, even if you keep it cool. Yes. It's not a storage thing. It is just no, that. Even it if it's used. in storage, perfectly. In the US, in Europe, all over the world, blood can only last for six weeks. Because it's a living thing. It's a, it's a living organism. Like it's not just water. It's, it's alive, right? Right? So if you don't, even if you maintain its coolness and you have to maintain blood's coolness all, all the time. Can't you freeze it? You can't freeze it. Because it's alive. Freeze. But you can freeze some other parts so of you can, humans. So you can freeze some parts of the blood. So you, you can freeze um, plasma. But the blood itself, I th- and I think there's a, there's a thing, I, I don't know the technical part of it, but I think red cells, you cannot freeze. So you can't freeze a whole bag of blood. You can freeze once you've extract, extracted the plasma, but I think red cells are alive, so you can't really freeze them. So they, they are, you have to maintain the temperature, a specific temperature for the entire shelf life. But even that chef life is only six weeks. So even if you maintain the cold chain, after six weeks, things will start growing that is harmful to the, to, the, to the recipient. So regularly in this country, people trash blood because it's expired. So I remember thinking, what? So, and it was clear that first you have the shortage. And when you have a shortage and it's surplus, at the same time, it's a problem of communication. So that's the problem, discovering. Discovering that there's blood somewhere. Somewhere. So you that have, the party that has a shortage is not able to discover the party that has a surplus. And that was it. So I thought, hmm, this is something tech can solve. Talk Create to each other. transparency. Exactly. And make it a, Create a marketplace. A marketplace for blood. That's what I used to, we call it something different now. But when I ideated it, it was a marketplace for blood. A place where you can bring your surplus and someone who has a shortage can take your surplus and pay for it. So you are able to narrow down to what the particular problem is, which is good, again, for some people who are listening to this podcast and trying to find out what they want to do, what what problems they should be solving, what business they should be building. And they're maybe driven not by the money, but they're driven by making an impact. Your story is very important because you're able to go from that big United Nations Mandela Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. to actually it's healthcare Mm -hmm. and actually it's just maternal care. And and it's about solving this particular uh, post-pattern Emirate. Emirate. Mm-hmm. And as uh, blood shortage. And it's mm-hmm. not just blood shortage. It's mm-hmm. about efficiency in mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. people discover blood. Mm-hmm. And actually, the way to do that is to create a, a platform that will enable people to know when there's a surplus and mm-hmm. there's shortage and they can interact and engage with each other and get and get the blood transferred as, as fast as possible. Exactly. So you move from that big mm-hmm. vision to that small 
problem that we could solve. Right. That's super interesting. Yeah. So it was, uh, so like I said in the beginning, it, it only makes sense. It only seems linear in hindsight. So while I was living it, it wasn't linear. It was just like a pocket of long frustrations and then sweet spots. So I'd have this, for, what am I going to do about blood? I can't, I, I remember writing a business plan for a blood bank actually. Right? I, I literally had a, I have a business plan on my laptop for a blood bank now. Because you saw, you talked because I thought is, that was how I could solve it. That was a solution. I needed to build a blood bank. There's no blood, build a blood bank. And then I f- was frustrated. I don't really want to build a blood bank. I'm not a blood person. I'm, on, I'm not a hematologist. Why should I build a blood bank? And it was frustrating. And then the sweet spot hits. So it was like a pocket of frustration and wild turns and deep turns and sort of narrowing the vision and narrowing the mission um, and being afraid of narrowing it, right? And being afraid that I wouldn't have, you know, the as much impact as I wanted to have. Um, but then having sweets, like, and I think what's important is spending a lot of time with yourself, right? Spending a lot of, a lot of people don't think, right? I spent a lot of time thinking about the problem and literally like just going deeply into the reality of the problem. And I think that's been what was, what, I think that's what helped a lot. So I, and also I learned from everyone, right? So I wasn't just, so people sometimes think, cause I'm not a doctor. They think, oh, I just was in my bed one day and I came up with the idea. No, it wasn't. I spent a lot of time talking to people who own blood banks, people who run blood banks, people in hospitals, doctors, people who died, people whose family died because there was no blood. I was just talking to everyone who talked to me about blood. Once so, I discovered the problem, I couldn't stop talking to people about you blood. You just want to go, go on and on. Yep. So how did you then, you're not a technology software developer, mm-hmm. you're not a nematologist, mm-hmm. you're just somebody who wants to solve problems. Mm-hmm. So how did you then build this platform? Mm-hmm. How did you, so you, how did you ideate and build it and say, okay, how, how do you get people together? Right. So the first thing I did was draft it. You drafted out this. Drafted what I think like. it should look like. What was in my head, what I had envisioned, and I'm very visual in terms of products. So when I have an idea, and I do this a lot, I have ideas. Like I, I, I say people, like when I'm driving on the road, I come with three business plans, <laughs> like business models as I'm driving on the road. Um, so when I had the idea, I had a product in my head and I had a vision for it, like literally what it's going to look like, where each button would be. If I were religious, I would say God gave me the idea, but you know, I just had this. It was perfectly developed in my head, right? In my mind, it was perfectly developed. So the first thing I did when I, when we got to Ibadan was I, I sketched it on a paper, right? I sketched it out. This is what was in my head and um, I didn't have a name for it yet. And then I, I just sketched it out. And at this time, because my organization where I worked was an American organization. So we didn't really have any office in Nigeria. So I worked at a co-working space in Lekki, in co-working space, um, Capital Square, right? So I, I worked at Capital Square. And in Capital Square, there were a lot of developers working for other companies, also in this co-working space. So I became friends with two of them, Jeff and AY. And so we'll talk, we're just friends. And I also have like, because I grew up in the U.S., I, I have like interest in nerdy things. So Game of Thrones, you know, superhero movies, comics and things like that. So we sort of bonded over that because they were, they were interested in that as well. Although our lives were completely different. We had like similar interests. So every time I remember that Game of Thrones was getting hot then, there was, I think we were on season five, season four and season five. So every time we watch it together, 
in the in like the kitchen of the co-working space anytime we were on break. So we'll all watch it and then we'll talk about it and then we became friends. And then I convinced them to help me build LifeBank. So I, I so we came up with a platform with the idea. I told them I didn't have a lot of money. I paid them what I had and they helped me build it. They helped you build it. They helped me build it. Not as a co-founder, but just freelance helping you. Exactly. So they were freelancing and we built it. So weekends, we'll meet in my house. I'll give them food. Like literally I'll cook for them and give them wine and they'll build and me my app. Coding. That's yeah. quite good. I, I think somebody should do it. Yeah, take like you should, you should like take it just off. Get, just get feed them. Feed them for a weekend. Yep. Give them wine yep. and beers yep. and they will code for they you. They will code for you. And literally that's what I did. Code for food. Absolutely. <laughs> and then so you had that yep. and, and so you have the platform. Yeah. But were you... So what was the platform doing at that point? Because I know you'd have iterated it over time. Right. What was it doing? So the then? platform was two, two, two functionality. So it gave blood banks a platform to list their blood. And it gave hospitals a platform to see what blood banks have listed. So you went to all the, all the blood banks that so you I didn't. So we had built this thing. So now I went to three blood banks that I built a relationship with while I was doing my research. And I said, will you use this? They said, yes, we'll use it. So they listed yeah, so they said their stock. The stock. Yep. The inventory. Yes, it. inventory. And how, how are they doing it? They just, uh, they have a, um, like, Literally, a, I will, interface. I will go there and say, what blood do you have? And they, okay, I have 10 bags of O negative. Input it into the interface. And all the types and stuff. Yes. And what they have. So they put yes. it there. And, then and the price point. And the price point that yes. they can sell it. So yes. blood banks sell bloods. Yes. Okay. And then the hospital needs Well, they don't blood. sell blood. So I need to be particular about that. <laughs> so they sell the services. So blood is free, but making it safe for you is not. So those are the services they sell. Right. It's a technical... You know, because it's legal to to sell blood. It's not really legal to sell blood because it's given free. It's given free, so it's not the blood they're selling, but it's the process of you know collecting it from the human being, testing it, keeping it in a cool storage in Nigeria throughout its shelf life, and moving it to where it's needed. So those are the things they charge for. Okay, so but you make that transparent enough mm-hmm. for uh, anyone that needs it. It was okay. the same app, so they just had their own demand-side interface. Interface, so you can yep. cl- click it and say, mm-hmm. okay, we've got X blood mm-hmm. in Y mm-hmm. location. So hospitals will say, um, I'm hospital so-and-so, I need two bags of O negative. It's an, so as them, is it an emergency or is it a scheduled surgery? And they say, yes, it's emergency or no, it's scheduled. How were they doing that before? Phone calls. Okay, so they have this Rolodex yes. of people. So they have that- this thick Rolodex. And they'll flip through it and call each blood bank one by one. Do you have this blood type? Do you have this blood type? Do you have this blood type? And blood bank, knowing that it's usually an, in an emergency, will say, I have this blood type, but it's 50K today. Oh, it's trying to get today. To get it to you. To get it to you. So the price point is not even transparent. It's not transparent. Because you know, when you get a phone call, yep. it's emergency. It's emergency. So I, I can bump up my price if I want to. Especially if you know that other people don't have that kind of blood. Exactly. If they've got to you. Exactly. Except that when we are the first person. It is call. an emergency, right? Okay. So Swiss don't have a lot of time. Blood is like you, some patients have 15 minutes to live. Some have two hours to live. And that's a maximum. Once you start bleeding, the maximum amount of time you generally have is about two hours. Wow. Between 15 minutes or 30 to, between 30 minutes and 15 minutes. And you bleed out and you literally go into shock. So and literally, yeah. hospitals need blood sometimes within 15 minutes. Yes. In Lagos traffic. Yes. 
in where the sometimes the telecoms don't work properly yes. you're calling people sometimes you call like there was a story the hospital called a blood bank on a sunday morning the guy was in church so he had muted his phone never reached him and he had the blood and the patient died because the blood bank is usually a one man business so they're shut down on sunday the person is in church he doesn't want to disturb you know the message in church he switched off his you know the alarm to ring and you know, that's it. And the hospital couldn't reach him. And he was like, maybe the second person they had, the first thing, one didn't pick up or the phone wasn't working. And the second one was, you know, just didn't pick up because he was in church and the patient died. Wow. Yep. Wow. So it's a, it's a, it's a big, big problem. So how did um, LifePank solve that? particular mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. so because you still need to reach someone okay right. i can see that this hospital has this blood mm -hmm. i mean this black blood bank, bank blood bank has this blood mm -hmm. this is the price point mm -hmm. and there is still the reach how do i reach this but okay mm -hmm. I, can, I can message them mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. life bank but then i reach the person's turn off their phone mm -hmm. and logistics of getting it so when i s first had this idea the logistics part was never one of it. And I really credit Boston and Tunji at, at Co-Creation Hubbed for helping me think about this part of it. Because I only, for, for some reason, I should have like literally thought about the logistics bit, but I just wanted to detect. And then I realized that you needed to, so even if you place the order, you need to get it to them in the right condition. So maintain the coaching, step one. And two, on time. So then we're going to do it with cars. But then once it's like a time thing, you know you can't do cars. And also, the next idea now I then have is, okay, let's contract the logistics bit. How? So before LifeBank, is mm -hmm. that how blood bank transfer blood? Yeah. So before so LifeBank, they would... So let's say you're in hospital, you've called your blood bank. Thankfully, they picked up. And thankfully, they had the stock you needed. Thankfully, you've agreed to the price point. Then you take your ambulance and drive to the blood bank to pick it up. Or you send a nurse or a cleaner in your hospital to go in a taxi to go and pick it up. And that's how literally how they did the logistics before LifeBank. Wow. And sometimes they could be stuck in traffic. A lot of times. Or the person that is speaking does not have the sense of urgency. A lot of times. Or you're on the road and it's very hot and you're stuck in traffic, so you've broken the coaching. You right? do what? You've broken the coaching. Wow. So before then, there was just so much in the blood blood system. It wasn't, us were trying their best, right? But they were having to work with no infrastructure, right? So what we did was be the infrastructure for the system. Say, discovery, we'll do it. We'll even get it to you in the hospital in the right condition. So when we started, it was really funny. We started and we were doing it in three hours because we didn't know what we were doing. We You're doing the we discovery were, so our, delivery of, within three hours. Within three hours. Well, patients have two hours to leave. Exactly. So once we started, we only could do, you know, um, not emergency. So we could only do scheduled surgeries. Okay. Right. And then we realized that the problem we really needed to solve was an emergency, not scheduled surgery. But then isn't it a factor of the amount mm -hmm. of blood banks close to hospitals? Exactly. So, so it was a factor of, of mapping. Okay. So it was a factor of mapping, getting the right route to the hospital and having more dispatch units but not just that but if, if there are very few blood banks in a particular area mm -hmm. and there, there are very few mm -hmm. places you could you, that you could discover blood from mm -hmm. that way so mm -hmm. 
no matter how fast you are, if you're mm-hmm. living on another side of town, mm-hmm. it's still going to take you a long time to get mm-hmm. to the hospital where the blood is needed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How do you address that? We have maps, right? So one of the ways we do it is we know that to get to the island in under one hour. So our goal at the time when we first launched, I said it was three hours. So our goal was to get it down to one hour. And while you are localizing it, it's okay. We're only going to get discovery for you in Lagos Island. No, because it's also blood, right? So you needed to find. So if if it's O negative, the rare types, you know, or A negative or something like that, something that's very rare. Sometimes the closest blood bank didn't have the stock. So first we needed to be more efficient routing. So we built a dispatch app to get our dispatch. The people were, you know, dropping off the blood to know the best route, right? One, two, we need to map properly. So we need that if you wanted to deliver blood at um, a hospital in VI, and the closest blood bank you need to have has to be like either in Mushi, like off of Ikorodu Road, or Yaba, you know, off of that same road, like Eco, Eco, Eco Bridge, or on the island. So we've mapped it. So the closest blood bank, so we know the closest blood bank, so we now went ahead and found this blood banks in those central locations, usually off of a major road. So either in Ikeja, you know, like off of Oroshoki, that part, so you can get on third mainland quickly and either go towards the edge, like the mainland side of uh, Lagos, or you can climb the third mainland bridge and come to the island. Or you're in Michigan, so you can get on Ikorodu Road and get on Oiko Bridge pretty quickly. So we now figured that out and we created hubs. Like blood bank hubs. And so you have this hub in this like motion side. And from motion, you can get to VI within 30 minutes on a bike. Like literally. So that's what we did. So we basically used data, like location data and mapping data. I remember first having my team print out a Lego state map and then just staring at it for like the whole day. Like I was like, okay. And then we started drawing circles and drawing circles. And then now we went on Google Maps and they figure out the distances. So we now created a system and we created hubs. Even and we've stuck with that till till date. But then there there will be some situation whereby in the hub, mm-hmm. the, the nearest hub to mm-hmm. the hospital, they don't mm-hmm. have that yeah. blood. You still so, have that logistics. Absolutely. So what we now decided is we could maintain fifty five minutes. Right. So all our orders must be delivered in fifty five minutes now. That's so you have your own riders. Yes. So we have three riders now and delivering blood all over Lagos. So how do you make money? We make money by charging hospitals for the delivery fee. Previously, the hospital mm-hmm. paid the blood banks. Yes. And the hospital pay for the logistics. Yes. The, the blood bank only provides services for taking the blood, yes. storing it, yes. and making it in a good condition. Yes. The hospital has to get the blood themselves. So the way it's worked before, the hospital mm-hmm. have to pay for the logistics. Mm-hmm. The hospital are happy for them yeah. to pay. So it's logistics that you're yes. playing at, not the blood services, not that they will pay you and then you pay the blood services. So they, they pay arbitrage. us. So they pay us for the entire entire fee. So you don't have arbitrage? Uh, what is arbitrage? So basically <laughs> you... The hospital, the blood bank. We don't charge for the, we don't charge anything on top of the blood. On top of the services that is. Exactly. So they pay for the blood. So let's say the blood bank is charging them 10,000 naira for one pint of blood. Yes. So the hospital pays us 10,000 naira plus $8. For this, for the, for the for logistics. The so 2,500. Fantastic. For the logistics. Right. So that's how we make money. That's right. So it's basically logistics. Yes. Play 
that is making it blood accessible. Yes. But no more than that, you're also doing the discovery. discovery. Because the reason why I asked about arbitrage is a lot of marketplaces work mm-hmm. on arbitrage mm-hmm. or commission stuff. Mm. So you, because you're making, you're providing a service mm-hmm. to the blood banks. Mm-hmm. You're making it easy for people to discover them. So we actually, our model right now, and perhaps there's room to sort of change that, our model doesn't charge blood banks for anything. You're right. providing a service to them. Right. So I, I think there, there's room in the future as we grow to actually charge for the, the discovery part and to charge them for allowing hospitals to discover them. Yeah, because before you started the logistics, before mm-hmm. you're thinking of logistics, mm-hmm. what, what yeah, was we were going to do arbitrage. Model? Exactly. We were, we're going to do arbitrage. Uh-huh. Right. Or we were going to follow sort of what... So we had two options. We were either going to do arbitrage and do like the Uber model, or we're going to do the two-less model where blood banks pay us a yearly fee. Okay. Right. So a subscription model. For them for, for it to be discovered. Yes. The only problem with that mm-hmm. is um, a blood bank might not want to do that. And then you're reducing the mm-hmm. inventory that could have been mm-hmm. on your platform. Exactly. Which is needed. You know that chicken and egg situation that marketplaces have? Yes. yes. You need to, you know, have enough inventory to get enough customer and you need enough customer to get enough inventory. Yes, yes. So we have to make it free. Yeah. But for you, it's even more difficult. Exactly. Because it's, you want that inventory to be discovered. Exactly. It's not like, okay, hotels. Yeah. You, you keep going to go to one hotel, you see yeah. hotel. Yeah. But this one, if they don't, if they don't see this right blood, if, uh, if blood, type of blood, exactly. and because that person is not your platform, mm-hmm. you're not serving your own purpose yep. and you're not achieving your vision. So for example, we did, a, we did a survey for our hospitals recently and we asked them, why do you like LifeBank? Why do you use LifeBank? And the first thing they said is, you are, they didn't say it in a techie way, but reliability. That was it. I can wake up anytime 24 hours, because we're also open 24 hours. You're open 24 hours? 24 hours. So you have logistics. Discovery and delivery. So these bikes are on the road 24 hours so a day. How profitable is that in terms of your unit economics? Right. And because I've run a logistics business before, right. and I know that, except you're paying them per delivery, but you, I don't know. Um, if they're open 24 hours, and you're paying them for all the hours. Mm. Even so, I don't think you have efficiency of blood mm. every time. Mm. And you cannot even control mm. that. It's not that like you can say, okay, let's drive. I'm going to ask you about your growth matrix, but you can, so that you can control and say, mm. okay, let's drive more orders. <laughs> you, you can't really do that. <laughs> you, you can't do that. Right. So, so how does that work in terms of profitability for you? So we haven't broken even. We are young, but we make money, right? We, we make, and our unit economics is strong. How does that work? Because, uh, yeah, okay. And so we have a much, very strong margin. Okay. Uh, 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 you paid ra- drivers some. So we, so also this is the part of saving lives, right? So we've been able to sort of have a team that, although paid market rate is not like the, we're probably like at the tail end of market rate. And I struggle to say it because I don't want anyone to come to me and say, <laughs> increase my salary. <laughs> but we, so our dispatch units are lifesavers. They're doctors on, on wheels. That's what we tell them all the time. Because I have to wake them up like at 3 a.m. in the morning and say, there's a life, you need to go save it. Right? right. And I'm not paying them extra for that. They get a flat fee whether they wake up or not. Right. But I have to wake them up. And they don't have a time that they have to work. And if it's not shifted. It's not shifted. No. That's hard. It's hard on them. But the interesting thing is we actually have the mo- like the lowest, I think, in the market, like um, turnover rate. The people who work for me have stayed since the beginning. 
because they can see they are vision. committed okay they are committed we're building this company together so, so how many on a, on a regular basis maybe monthly how many mm-hmm. blood do you move around so monthly right now we move about 200 units every month yeah how many uh, blood banks have we got on your platform we have 40 blood banks in lagos in lagos be a bit of that locality to mm-hmm. it you cannot just to say we're going to have a blood bank in badan right. so you have to you have to have, have a logistics exactly yep yep so i wonder how the scale of this how yeah. scalable that is yeah so we i spent a lot of time looking at uber right i spent a lot of time looking at their model and how they roll out in new cities right in terms of scale and that's what what we plan to do for example uber is not building their apps in every new cities they move so we currently we already have the discovery platform right even our call center would be centralized just how uber's tech team is centralized right so we have that centralization but then we have a local team that actually you know operate the de- delivery so discovery is centralized and it's thus very cheap to do and very cheap to roll out the delivery part is the one that is localized i get that so yeah. i think the key thing is about the the efficiency of, of, of each delivery so let's right. say you pay riders maybe 10,000 naira per day okay and you have what? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> putting right. some numbers out. Right. Okay. Let's say we right. pay them ten thousand. Let's say we pay them five thousand dollars per day. Right. And actually, let's put numbers here. Okay. So, roughly, mm-hmm. average, how much does the driver earn per day, rider? I'll have to do the math. So I have the month data. Just give me a minute. Let me actually find out. Yeah, like um two thousand naira. Okay, per day. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how many, on average, how many? deliveries would they do on average so per day they would do about three four okay and you make like 2500 from each of them yes so they need to do okay after the, after the first one they started breaking even so okay mm-hmm. so they need about four mm-hmm. that's 4x mm-hmm. of okay mm-hmm. and if you scale that out because that's where the mm-hmm. math is exactly so scale that out you're so. profitable when i'm talking about our growth you see how it will work in growth so we're not just a blood play right right We have a platform for discovery in the health sector and delivering in the health sector. So I wonder whether you can use the Uber model then, mm-hmm. whereby you're not okay. You can pay someone, we'll pay you, I'll pay you to stand by per day, right? Or very little amount, but we pay you per per blood that you do, and it's gonna as many as possible. Exactly. Because then you have as many riders, exactly, and you can dispatch to them, exactly, and and the first person that picks up goes exactly. and takes it. It's like so the guy can be has his own bike and exactly. stuff, but it's catered for this. Exactly, you can provide them with a box that exactly. they can put into their box exactly. into, the, into the back of their bike, precisely, and they turn it up on, mm-hmm. so they could be doing their normal car right. or whatever, right, and they accept it. They have to go and get the box, right. and fit it in, and then. I was wondering if, right so point. actually that's the future right okay. so right now we have to do our delivery ourselves because we need to know how to yeah. and we need to know figure out exactly what are the sweet spots and what are the best practices in doing this work because it's also technical it's a cold chain system and you have to maintain that cold chain system so we have a few products that help us do that we have our blood boxes we have our temperature strips and we have a few things that we we use to maintain our cold chain right But right now we are in Lagos and our, our model actually works pretty well in Lagos. But if we expand this model, not just Lagos, 
to multiple other cities in the country. And think of LifeBank as not just LifeBank in Nigeria, but LifeBank Accra, LifeBank Nairobi, LifeBank, you know, Mexico City, LifeBank Karachi, LifeBank Mumbai. So if you think of LifeBank like that, you know that there's each city, you now have a pool of dispatch units. Once our model was working very well, the next thing I did was build a dispatch app. So right now, we actually already work a model where we have, when the order comes through, there's an alert on the dispatch's phone. Right. And the dispatch, the first dispatch who picks it up, gets it. So they, we currently use a point system right. to say, so we don't pay them because we'd still pay flat fee per salary, but there's a point system where you know who's accruing a lot of points, right? Based on how many Based deliveries. on how many deliveries they do and how okay. quickly so they deliver it. Oh, that's exactly. Good. So once you pick up, you say, I've picked up. Once you drop up, because there are few units there. So you first have to go to the blood bank, pick up the blood and then drive to the hospital and drop off. So once you're getting through that unit, each unit, we say, you've completed that. You've completed that part of what you're doing. Then you drop it off. And it's on the app. And, you can and it's on the app. So what I'm trying to say is you can now scale that everywhere. Yes, yes. So you now see, you know, orders coming in all the time, all the time and dispatch all over the world, picking it up. So that's what I meant by discovery is centralized, but delivery is localized. And you have this group of, you know, life doctors on wheels is what we like to call them because, you know, they are on call all the time. So they're very similar to doctors like that. So you have all these doctors on wheels all over the world, basically helping hospitals find, deliver the essential medical products they need using this app. So it's almost like a product within a product within a product. Okay. So I know we've spent a bit of time here. And right. I just, your story is super, super interesting. <laughs> right. Um, We're going to get to the end now, but I just mm-hmm. want to ask about um your view about the, primary and, and secondary healthcare in Nigeria, mm. uh, how LifeBank fits into that mm. and, and in the bigger picture as well, mm. what can be done, where efficiency can be created at LifeBank. Right. So the first thing I would say is, so LifeBank, we are not just a blood play, right? We, you know, blood, vaccines, oxygen. Oxygen is our next product. We are um, plasma platelets, organs. Because you're a logistics we're, layer. Exactly. We're delivery, discovery and a delivery platform for yes. anything your, your hospital needs to save your life, right? That's literally what we're doing. So we can do anything, right? So that's very important, right? The next part is, to answer your question is, I spend a lot of time thinking about you know Nigeria's health system and Africa's health system and health system in the developing world as a whole. And I think one of the important things is, so if you're thinking about a health system, there are six blocks that you have to get right to make sure that the health system grows and delivers services the right way. The first one is, you know, financing. And I think the most important, of course, you have governance, you have service delivery, you have, you know, health information, you have, you know, access to medicines and supplies, which is what LifeBank does. And, and, you know, you have, um, HR for health. So you have to get all of this right. But I think the center of all of this is financing. And I think that's what developing countries haven't figured out. And I actually think all countries in the world are trying to figure it out. How best to build a health system and how best to finance a health system. And I think the lesson we have to learn from people who've done it well, Singapore and, and you know, countries who've done, you know, build a system well, um, you ensure that you have to have a pool. You have to get every single person in a community contributing what they can to the community health pool, right? You must do that. And that's one of the things we haven't done very well. Of course, we see a lot of state health insurance systems sprouting up all over Southwest Nigeria, right? None of them have worked very well because you're actually not creating a real pool, right? Because you're not making sure that every single person in a particular community is contributing what they can. So rich people will contribute more 
poor people will contribute, you know, less. And even in services, it's not even up to pass. So people still spend money. Exactly. Exactly. So you are not going to pull into places where you can get good services. And I think it's also the second most important thing is first, we have to get a pool, a proper pool in place. Uh, The second most important thing is get government out of service delivery. All the other problems you have, HR for health will search itself, right? Access to medicine and supplies will search itself because there's now a pool. What do you mean by pool? So a pool is a mechanism in health financing. It's basically you create a pot, a big pot where everybody can drop what they can. Money? Money. Okay. Yes. So a pool of money. So if you're earning, so in, in I think, Europe, and I, in Singapore, I really love Singapore's health system. It's pretty cool. Um, so if you're earning a particular amount, the government earmarks a particular cent- percentage of your income that they will take and put in the health pool. So in the, in the UK, we have the NHS, which is exactly. funded by the government. Exactly. And it's not paid at delivery, but it's paid by, for, by, by from, your, from your taxes. But when exactly. you have any issues, and you go to the hospital, exactly. you're treated free. Exactly. Because it's been paid but for. Everybody's paying for it. And it's run, and, and the hospitals are not run by government. They're exactly. run by trust. Exactly. We get money from the government exactly. based on what the what services they delivered. They, they Thank delivered. you. That's what we need to do. And the government is very good. And the government now provides oversight to the trust, determines the prices, yes. provides oversight to the trust and ensures that they're doing it well. And the trust is not existing to make money or profit mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. but it's to they have to break even, exactly, to keep yourself running. So they get services, we get the money exactly. from the government to do that. Exactly. So that's... One of the things I think the government should do when it comes to service delivery, the government needs to get out of it way, get out of the way, get all these hospitals in the hands of trusts, if if you will, private sector, if you must, you know, get this. Let's build a better health system, and I think one of the things we can do is to get the government out of delivering healthcare services directly and get them in in doing in creating the the pool of money that we need to pay um, from taxes, from you know, from and everybody can pay what they can, and then the second thing is. Provide oversight. Interesting. Yeah. That's very unique because yeah. you, you really talked about a problem so much. Yeah. Right. So let's round off this interview because mm-hmm. it's been super, super interesting. Uh, with a f- series of fire and questions, I'm right. going to ask you and just give a quick answer to right. them. What is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Fundraising. How much have you raised? We've raised about $50,000. You've only done this with $50,000? Yes. We've moved 8,000 units of blood, so 94 hospitals. We've saved 1,800 people. Lives. Lives in Lagos. And we've been in, around for 20 months. 22 months, sorry. So have you looked at raising fund money? So we're, from, we're fundraising now. Uh, but you've looked at raising grants from people who say this is a... Right. So it's hard. The, um, one of the problems with grants is the, the lives... So first you have to make sure there's one person in your company just whose job is getting grants. Yeah. One, two, you have to make sure the life cycle is, is long. It's okay. longer. So I haven't spent a lot of time. Actually, we've never gotten any grants, right? We've always raised venture funding. Um, By the time this interview actually goes out, we would have closed our round. Okay. We're, so you're yeah. in the process of raising a round. Raising a round, right. And um, how big is this round that you're raising? Um, It's about $250,000. Um, so it's not significant, but, you know, it's something. Um, and the interesting part of it is also that... We have a competitor, an American competitor, not in Nigeria, in Africa. And this competitor has raised like almost $30 million. 
And a few days ago, they released reports and I was reading it and they've moved perhaps like, like 500 less than we have. Like 500 less orders than, than we've done. But because they're in the US. But because they're an American company, they can raise more and cheaper capital. And do this where? In the US? In Nigeria. I'm sorry, in Africa. They're doing it in Africa, but yeah. not, not in Nigeria. Not in Nigeria, yeah. So it goes back to the, your ability to share, your, to tell your story. Right. Well, we debated this with, some, mm-hmm. with one of my friends about why African founders could not raise as much as non-African founders doing the same type of business in Africa. It, sometimes... A lot of it has to do with access, access mm-hmm. to the right money and familiarity with the people that have the money mm-hmm. and, and people, those people who to connect to them. So if I mm-hmm. went to Cornell, I went to Harvard with you and I'm the one with the VC, mm-hmm. which would likely be, mm-hmm. and you, you are from Harvard mm-hmm. and you're doing this, mm-hmm. I can say, oh, it's Demi, it's Demi. And I can likes just write to, yeah, yeah. to $2 million mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. So that's the, and then, but, oh, but a key one, which can be controlled is, Actually, story, storytelling. So we've actually, so I think partly is my fault, actually, to be quite honest. What I'm good at is putting my head down and doing what I have to do. Not, and for some reason we've gotten a lot of press, but I'm not very good at it. I don't enjoy it. I don't like doing it. I don't like going to events. I don't like going to anywhere. Like, I just want to be at work and go to my house. Um, And I think that's part of my particular problem. And I, I think you could also extrapolate it to a lot of African foreigners. A lot of times you have to show up. Right? Yes. You have to show up. Yes. You have to show up and tell your story all the time. That's literally one of your biggest jobs. And I also think, but it's also structural, right? It's so it's much it's a it's a much harder sell for you to think that a young you know African woman would um, build a global business and a big business. But it's, 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 if you're talking to an investor, you say, okay, you know um, this older Americans could do it better than you can, right? There's a sense, there's a there's an underlying sense that, you know, you maybe cannot do this thing. But I, I mean, I, I, I'm also, I'm, I'm confident. I know that I can. But part of it is also telling the story and being out there. And one of the reasons why I committed to this interview is to say, this is what we're doing and yes. we're doing it very well. And then there's also the part of like doing something flashy and sexy. So, so perhaps drones. Maybe that would get people in on the table. You know, but maybe I, I that would do something. I think you've got it. something really flashy at the moment, which is saving lives. Right. I think it's that packaging that right. story well right. and being there to say, right. to share that story. Absolutely. Speaking at events. I know you were part of the tour uh, that went to Europe. Europe. Yeah, um, that was very, very good. And that opened up a lot yeah, of conversations. Absolutely, absolutely. You. So, okay, so fundraising is your biggest mm-hmm, challenge now. Mm-hmm. What is your number one growth metric? What do you look at to measure what are your business it's, it's going? The, the, the first thing is units of blood to move. I like to think of Live Bank as a dual impact organization. First, we have to make money, one, and because we're a company. And two, we have to save lives. So this is the one metric that, you know, tells me, because we make, we make money per units of product we move. And then we also know that... For each blood we move, it's saving someone's life. But you cannot so, control how that those blood comes. The only right. thing you can control is how many hospitals you are signing up exactly. to be checking you up for Right. That. So, so yeah, I mean, if, if you're, it's the same thing if you're an e-commerce company, you have to make sure you're getting more people into the pipeline onto your site, but you cannot control how much they spend on your site. Yeah, but that right. one is easier. No, not that easier. That one is different in the sense that, okay. You, you can inspire the, them to buy you, more. You can, get them, no, you can actually right. get them to come to your site. So let's let's take example of hotels.ng. Hotels of NG make hotels discovery easy for mm-hmm. people that want to book mm-hmm. hotels. So what mm-hmm. they have to do is to sign up a lot of hotels, mm-hmm. so inventory, mm-hmm. and then they have the people that want to sign up 
and, and get more people into mm-hmm. the place so they, they can do a lot of marketing. So right. okay, if you want to book a hotel or even inspire them to look for hotels to right. book but by expanding holidays. But with you, you can get hospitals to to know about it, to sign them up. Right. But you cannot control how quickly or what, whether they should get the blood or not because right. this is bad. Right. <laughs> it's emergency. So, so the... The interesting thing about that is that's why you're building something that they want. That's why you must build something they want. Yes. Our hospital sign-up process is actually very, very easy and very, very effective. So we run a direct sales, right? So we have sales agents that go up, show up at the hospital and uh, try to tell them about LifeBank. And actually, it takes two meetings to uh, sign them up. To sign them up. Because it costs and them nothing. Start, because it's, it, it costs them nothing to sign up. And they know they have this pain point. And we're solving the pain point. Yeah. So they use us the first time. They use us for the first two months. They usually test us. To oh, see what I do. Are you sure these people can be available all the time? But by the next quarter, once we've signed them up, they're ordering like all so, their blood from so us. So your group is getting more people to sign up. Yep. Almost all the people in Lagos sign up. So yeah, our goal is two things. We have to expand where we work in a manner of... And under that is the amount of hospitals we sign up. At the same time, we have to expand what we're moving, right? So we have to add additional things to hospitals. So not just blood. We lunch with blood, but then we move to plasma and platelets. Okay. And now we're now going to add oxygen. And in the future, oh. we'll add other, we'll add vaccines. So, so there's more efficiency for your riders. Exactly. Because then they can Because they're moving more, multiple things, right? Yes. They're moving all the things hospitals need and they're moving it to the hospital. So you can charge for each unit of products you move. So you're making the driving more efficient and making more money for by each trip. What about drugs? Um so I'm not a pharmacist, but okay. there's room to do any like any right. of these things. But, in the but, UK there's yeah. logistics that move drugs as well. Yeah. Not just to the hospital but to people's, to homes. people's home. I shy away from B2C, right? right? Generally I technically I think I feel more comfortable working with businesses. But yeah, absolutely. Well, there's room be, to it. You can it grow. could be that um some some people need us on a regular basis. Maybe exactly. So you now have a subscription. Like, exactly. Like instantly. Exactly. It's, okay, this hospital and it could be come from the hospital. Right, okay. absolutely. We've got this in in house in Patient, right or is it inpatient they call it or outpatient outpatient you yes. have this outpatient yes uh, who needs this drug delivered every month yes. and normally they would have come to the hospital yes but we refer them to life bank and then they yes. have a subscription with yes so you can just say on tuesday you deliver this drug to mrs right. g you deliver this drug to mrs that's a. actually pretty neat Thanks. Right. <laughs> okay. So you can just like, so we're the always say, okay. We're gonna be absolutely. Yeah. And so it's that not could be really you're interesting. Going after people, yeah. like, I need this product. Yeah, like, no, you're going back. People would literally need these drugs need to leave. So people time. with like diabetes, people yes. with like HIV, yes. or you know, you know, antiretroviral. Yes. Um, people. That's actually a good idea. Yes. And then you deliver it to them on a regular on a schedule. basis. Because, yeah. they, because they're not on demand. Absolutely. And, and the hospital. It's pretty cool. So you click. That's good. Maybe okay. before this this goes out, <laughs> we'll launch it. Awesome! I like I like that movement. Awesome. Which book are you reading at the moment? Ah, I to be honest, I like to listen to. I know I should give you a business, you know, re- you response, don't have to. but I, I like to listen to business things. Okay. Like so, when I'm driving, I still, I drive myself specifically so that I can spend a lot of time alone and learning. So I do a lot of podcasts. I do a lot of you know. Um, YouTube videos and, and even like learning basic finances, I did it on YouTube videos. So I, I actually spend, um, and this goes back to the story that I said, I 
only reads romance novels. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I think that's good actually because yeah. I, I've, I've started trying to go back to reading uh, non-fiction, right? Or, or no, fiction, fiction actually, because right, I'm, I'm reading a lot right. Of so I prefer audio books and I prefer hearing things that I need, but reading for me is pleasure so i don't want to add work to it that's fine yeah which business is getting you excited at the moment apart from life bank hmm which business is getting me excited at the moment i think about that you can pick any just one or two that you know right um of course, Piggy Bank. I think everyone is excited about Piggy Bank. I think it's pretty cool. I need to get him on the show. Actually. Yeah, and I love Odun. Odun is like a little sister, so she's she's fantastic. And of course, um, yeah, I'll go with Piggy Bank. Piggy yeah. Bank. Okay. Yeah. Tammy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I think we spent a lot of time talking about your Absolutely. story, which I knew is going to be very important. Right. And it's just great to link that, your story, right. to what you're doing now. And right. I, I must say again, you're doing a fantastic job. Thank you so you're much. You're saving lives. You're making huge impact. Thank you so much. And I think a lot of money should be coming your way. Please. <laughs> Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you so much. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.